parable of the Good Samaritan this morning in Luke chapter number 10. Uh, and I, I do think it's, there's something about a new year that's always uh, exciting. Uh, you know, just a new perspective, a new start sometimes is the feeling. Um, and I, I want to put it this way with the Good Samaritan. Um, I don't want to necessarily present it as a new perspective on it, but more so the correct one. Uh, and I, I don't mean that to sound arrogant, like you're about to be blown away, uh, but more so because to be, and actually even Kenny can attest to this. When I started the study over a month ago, I had something really specific in my brain that I thought I was working towards. And then of course you start studying and you're like, oh, that's, uh, it's not what Jesus was trying to say. And I don't want to say what he's not saying. So, um, so not again, I want to say not a new one, but really the correct perspective. And I hope that it really is as much of a challenge to you this morning as it has been for me. Uh, Overall, though, looking at the parables of Jesus, uh, there are over 30 parables in the Gospels, but I do think uh, certainly the Good Samaritan is one of the most familiar, uh, but John MacArthur actually calls it the most misunderstood and misapplied parable of Jesus. Now, a parable uh, was just a simple way of illustrating a deeper truth of God or a deeper truth from Scripture, and in a way, it just made something that was maybe difficult to kind of grasp just a little bit easier or a little bit simpler. Now, I say that also understanding that there were some parables that Jesus gave that said, you know, he kind of was like, don't worry, you'll figure it out later kind of idea. But even those, the whole idea was still simplifying a truth to kind of make it a little bit easier to grasp. But what's important to understand when you study parables is that Jesus always used them to make one single point. Now, I also say that, again, we understand there are other principles that you can pull from them. But to understand them correctly, the question that you're asking is, why did Jesus use this parable? And really asking, what context did he use it in? What truth was Jesus trying to seek to teach by using this parable or this story? Studying and understanding the context of any parable is vital to understanding exactly what point Jesus was trying to make and giving the story in the first place. Again, the Good Samaritan is one that we know, but how do you hear it applied probably 95% of the time? Be a Good Samaritan, right? Samaritan, he, he looked past cultural, societal, even racial barriers, and he served and he sacrificed and he did what was right. Now, that principle is there. So I'm not, obviously, you're not like throwing everything out. But the question becomes, but is that the point that Jesus meant to make when he used it? We even have this kind of in our own society, right? Like Good Samaritan laws, which are laws that are in place that actually uh, basically protect like a bystander from liability. So if they witness like an accident or some sort of emergency and they try to do something, and obviously you can't be like negligent or like, oh, I'm just trying to help, and then you make it worse, uh, then you're in trouble. Uh, But if you're genuinely trying to help, these laws protect people like good bystanders, good Samaritans, uh, from liability in the situation until like emergency services arrive. Again, good laws, but even that, I think, twists a little bit of our perspective. Again, these aren't necessarily bad things, and, uh, it, but it has in many ways twisted our understanding of the parable itself. So again, you kind of come to the question, what was the point that Jesus is seeking to make? We're going to find this morning that it is not a call to be a good Samaritan. The story itself is not about calling us to be kind, sacrificial, and compassionate. Now, again, those are characteristics that we should have and things that we should try to do and be, but that wasn't the point that Jesus is making in this story. Now, uh, the parable, again, is used to kind of just 
break, you know, spoil the ending. Uh, Jesus uses this parable to expose the foolishness of thinking that we can live a meaningful life without God. It's used to expose the self-righteousness of a man who thought that he could earn eternal life without God's help. Now, to kind of help you understand uh, at least how dangerous of a place, because we hear that, we're like, oh, arrogant self-righteousness, that's bad. But I want you to kind of understand how dangerous of a place that is to be, whether it's a lost person or as a Christian as well. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but Proverbs 26 is actually one of my favorite chapters in Proverbs. And if you study verses 1 through 12, it it really is a a purposeful picture that's painted to make one really powerful point. So 1 through 12, but if you study the first 11 verses, it paints the picture of the fool, just this guy who doesn't have any intelligence or he's naive and he doesn't make wise decisions. Uh, and in the first 11 verses, I'm just sort of paraphrasing to move through it, um, but verses 20, uh, chapter 26 of Proverbs, verses 1 through 11, but, you know, says things like, don't waste time arguing with a fool. It's, it's a waste of time. Uh, he also says, uh, sending an important message with a fool is like cutting off the feet of a messenger, which is pretty graphic, but it's, you give a message, an important message to a fool, it's like giving it to somebody and cutting their legs off, essentially, their feet off. He also says a wise saying in a fool's mouth is like a thorn driving into your wrist, which again, that's not very pleasant. Uh, at least I'm assuming it's not. Uh, and then also wisdom from a fool. This one's pretty, uh, it's a little intense, to be honest, uh, but very helpful. Wisdom from a fool is as useful as a paralyzed man's legs. That's like, So useless, just to clarify that one. Uh, And then the last one, most of us have probably heard this one, like a fool returns to his folly like a dog uh, returns to his vomit. So again, I just use those to say the first 11 verses, you're like, man, this, this fool, I mean, he's hopeless. Like this guy, he's useless, hopeless, helpless. But then what does he say in verse 12? So Proverbs, all that, that's the picture. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope of a fool than for him. So I want you to understand as we kind of, Good Samaritan, oh, it's about arrogance. Well, that's a dangerous place to be. Now, the context is evangelistic. So obviously we're not going to just like hop over that because that's the point. But I want you to understand that, again, we look at all that understanding God's hand and sovereignty, uh, his sovereignty and salvation. Biblically, it is the responsibility of each individual to humble themselves at the cross of Christ, to acknowledge our need of a Savior, to call out to God alone for salvation. That's the gospel, that the hope of salvation of eternal life rests only in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not something that just happens to you. You must be broken by your helplessness to save yourself, because you can't, and then repent and trust Christ alone for the payment of your sin. Otherwise, you have have to pay for your sin yourself. Important principle, one that we can't miss, but I want you to also recognize that even as believers, we ought to be humbled continually by our ongoing helplessness without God's empowering presence and his sanctifying work in our life. And this is where we come back to the point that Jesus is making by using this parable. The foolishness of self-righteousness is what Christ is highlighting to this man who thinks his knowledge and his, his legalistic adherence to the law would be enough to earn him eternal life. But again, to believers, we are given a similar call as we seek to live the Christian life, a life that proclaims 
the, the, the righteousness, the holiness, and the salvation of Jesus Christ. It is arrogant, even as a believer and selfish, to assume that we can claim to love God without being faithful to even his simplest commands, like faithfulness to worship or passion and being devoted to knowing him and knowing his word. Now, those are, again, kind of applications that we're going to get more into the further that we move along. But I just want you to help uh, as we start working through this, to have the correct lenses on. I don't want to like blindside you at the end. We're like, whoa. <laughs> We're going to put the right perspective on as we look at it. Because now as we look at it, what you're understanding is this is a guy who thinks he's fine without Jesus. He's trying to trip Jesus up. And what does Jesus do? He flips it on him. Why? To help him, actually. Not just to confront him and make it awkward. He's trying to help this guy see his arrogance and see that he really does need Christ. And again, we try to live peaceful, joyful, fulfilled Christian lives, but far often, far too often, we seek to do it in our own strength or in our own wisdom without ever actually considering what God has to say about it. And you read Isaiah, right? He says that these people, and Jesus actually quotes Isaiah as well, these people honor me with their lips, with their mouths and their words, but their hearts are far from me. And I quote that to say as we move into this, those are words that should scare us. And the sense of, is that said of me as a believer, that I honor God with my, maybe I think the right things or I say the right things, but are we honoring the way that we ought to? And I kind of ask the same question that we would ask from this, are you despising the one that you truly need? And that's what we're kind of the title, if you're taking notes or you're a note taker, it's despising what we need. Are you despising the one you truly need? So we're going to break this down, really just three sections, 25 to 29, and then 30 to 35, and then we'll kind of wrap it up with 36 and 37. Uh, So the initial conversation, verses 25 to 29, um, just look at verses 25 and 26 to start. So, uh, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, tempted Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? So, of course, right off the back, we're told that this man is tempting or he's testing Jesus. Uh, There has been some, uh, I would call it unnecessary debate on whether this is like, oh, he's actually tempting him or he's just asking a question. Uh, But I do want to point out that this, the Greek word there for tempted only appears in the New Testament four times. Here in Luke 10, obviously, because we just looked at it. uh, And then Matthew 4 and Luke 4 are both quotes uh, from the Old Testament saying it's a command, don't tempt the Lord your God. And also you'll notice in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the same Greek word and he's describing Israel's foolish and sinful tempting of God. So I just want to clarify this word. He's not, his intentions aren't good. Okay. They're bad. They're sinful. They're cynical and arrogant. He's just trying to find a way to trip up Jesus by nuancing the law, which I don't know if irony to me is some sometimes humorous because I'm like, he's literally talking to the one that technically gave the law to Moses and he's trying to, but anyways, it's a little bit of a, a, like a digression, but still important, I think. So, um, but the lawyer, okay. So we, we read lawyer, And we immediately have a picture of something in our mind, right? Now, again, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of a lawyer, I think of like, you know, the subtle antagonist of every Christmas Hallmark movie. Uh, You know, the jerk lawyer that the girl, the conflicted girl is dating the whole time. And he's, you know, he's got like his suit and his big city apartment. And he's like on his phone the whole time because he's the jerk lawyer. And he's like, oh, didn't, you know, be different next week, you know, but I got to win this, you know, and then she dumps him, right? Uh, (laughs) That's how it just always plays out. Um, that's, 
what I picture when I think lawyer. I picture the guy in a nice suit, driving a nice car, really busy. That's not what this is. This is not a prosecutor or an attorney. A lawyer in this time was somebody that was basically going to be associated with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and it really just meant that they were a a clinical expert in the law. They observed strict adherence to the law, often more extreme than like your standard follower, and they were often consulted, maybe like in a court case or religious you know situations. They'd be consulted uh, just for their knowledge and their insight. He's a highly educated individual. He's book smart. That's kind of this guy. Uh, And sadly, though, these types of individuals were guys that had basically decided that the law was everything and that they were good enough and smart enough to know it and to keep it perfectly and earn eternal life. So that's kind of the, the kind of person this is. And of course, he asked the question, trying to trip Jesus up, what must I do? So you find, again, right off the bat, his motive is wrong, and actually his question is wrong. He's arrogantly and cynically trying to trip Jesus up by nuancing the law, and he also, in the back of his mind, is thinking that he's the professional, that his righteousness is good enough to get him the life that he thinks he needs. I do want to point this out as well, because we read eternal life and we immediately think just salvation, but I do want you to recognize that the concept of eternal life in Scripture, uh, especially like in the Gospels, isn't just eternity in heaven. And obviously that's an important component, so I'm not like saying don't think about that. It, it is salvation, but when you talk about eternal life, Scripture actually presents it as something that you can experience now, and then you will have perfectly forever in heaven, such so you get into like sanctification and stuff like that. Uh, and again, I say we're not going to go too far down that rabbit hole, but this is exactly what like the book of Philippians calls the joyful Christian life, right? It is, uh, it's a life that is lived in unity and in humility before God and his word, a life of walking in the spirit and seeking after God's heart. This is the peace that passes all understanding, but recognize it can only come from a humble, faithful pursuit of Jesus Christ. This man is really asking Jesus, how can I have all the benefits of walking with God without walking with God? It's kind of uh, the premise there. Uh, So now, uh, and, and again, verse 26, Jesus immediately flips it on him, right? Well, how do you understand it? Where are you at? So he flips it on him to get right to the heart of the issue. So what's his response? Verses 27 and 28. And he, the lawyer answering, said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. So he summarizes the law, loving God and loving others. You study Galatians 5, and actually Jesus in Matthew 22 says himself that these two principles summarize the entire law, that we ought to love perfectly God and others. But recognizing that it's not just knowing the right answers, as this man is about to find out. (laughs) Recognize that there is a difference between just agreeing with truth and having, though, having let those truths convict and humble you to repentance before God. Just knowing and agreeing is not what saves us. It is repentance before God because of what he has done on our behalf. You look at verse 28, and Jesus' response to the man is fascinating. Because what does he say? Correct. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> or at least he's saying, so far as your words are concerned, yes, you're right. Now, if you read that, for me, my brain immediately goes, wait, what? (laughs) But remember, 
We're working to a conclusion. Jesus is trying to make a point to this man. Remember, he thinks he's fine on his own. This statement is just trying to work this man to Jesus' conclusion. This isn't the conclusion itself. The Greek phrase that he says, like, this do and you'll live kind of idea, it's in the present imperative tense in Greek, which actually implies an ongoing action that never ceases. So it's the idea of once you start an action, it can never stop. One failure equals complete failure. You get zero second chances. So it kind of clarifies that a little bit as we kind of you start working through it. On top of that as well, it's actually a quote from Leviticus 18 and also Nehemiah 9 and Ezekiel 20, which essentially is communicating the same idea. If you can perfectly keep the law, then you'll live. But of course, we know that that's impossible, which is the point. The point here uh, is that no one except God is perfect. You study Galatians 3 and 5, Romans chapter 7, and you have that as Paul presents the idea, right? The law is our schoolmaster. It brings us to God. And this is exactly what Jesus in his statement is trying to basically highlight to this guy. Our imperfection, our inability to redeem and save and cleanse ourselves, is supposed to draw us to the God, or to God and his work on the cross as the only means of salvation, redemption, and hope. And even as a Christian, it's the same idea of sanctification and growing in our faith. So the meaning of the statement, which the man would have picked up on, was basically, you must forever, always, perfectly love and serve God and literally everyone else. And sadly, we do find kind of the arrogance of this man come back up again. It was meant to expose his helplessness without Christ, but he arrogantly responds again to this reality. So what does he say in verse 29? But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? (laughs) Uh, There's really two parts to his arrogance here. And again, our arrogance probably reflects him more than at least I would like to admit in my own life. Um, But willing to justify himself, he just asks, who's my neighbor? The first part of this You recognize he's assuming he's already fulfilled the first part. Love God and love others. He's like, oh, wait a second. I know the law. I know all the answers. So I love God. I know all the right things, so I'm fine. So what does he ask? Well, just tell me who I have to be nice to, and I'll be fine. So it's it's been exposed, but he's pushed back against it. He's made an excuse. He's justified whatever decision he's made, and he's cut off the answer that he actually needs. Loving God isn't just knowing, but it is pursuing and obeying him. And it does, it does go back to the idea that this man has missed the entire point of the whole law in the first place, which is to expose our helplessness and our hopelessness without God. His answer to Jesus' statement about perfectly always keeping the law, again, is just, just tell me who I have to be nice to and I'll be fine. He thinks on his own, without any help from God or anyone else, that he can be holy, which is complete idiocy. It's absolutely ridiculous. And sadly, it is condemningly arrogant. Now, if you read Isaiah 5, it's an interesting passage. Talking to these people, Isaiah says this, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. He goes on to say that their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected. Now, these are people that claim to love and follow and know God and be pursuing God. He says they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. And catch this. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
Sounds a lot like Proverbs 26, 12, doesn't it? You see the man wise in his own eyes. There's more hope of a fool than of him. These people claiming to love God and their actions told a very different story. And Isaiah says, truly, you are despising the one that you actually need. Despite being a self-proclaimed professional of the law of God, men like this were in fact men who had missed the whole point of the law in the first place. Remember, the law is supposed to show us our helplessness without God. And again, I just point you to Galatians 3 and 5, Romans 7, and actually Leviticus 18 as well. The point of the law would to show man that innocence, justification, and cleansing without God is impossible. Now, this circles back to, we haven't even gotten to the parable yet, so (laughs) this is fascinating. But again, we circle back to what's the point that Jesus is trying to give or he's trying to make as he gives this parable that we're going to read right uh, in just a moment. This man has missed the entire point of the law. He thinks he can do it without humility before God. Now, Christ, of course, knows this, and he is about to expose it to him to get right to the heart of the issue. But before we go any further into this, you do need to realize that this principle is just as poignant for Christians as it is for the lost, because there is a hopelessness that can engulf a Christian if we're trying to live for God without being truly humble before him. Now, you may be someone who's accepted Christ, uh, which is something to rejoice and, of course, be glad in, but you still have to recognize how foolish it is to live a life apart from seeking God's will and God's heart. So you might ask, how how do I know then where my heart really is? I would point you to Matthew 15 and say, well, what does Jesus say? He says what comes out of you defiles or condemns you. Why? Because that's what's really in your heart. Have you ever seen those? I just think, I mean, they're not fascinating in a good way, but you always have like the athletes that they mess up. And then they go to their press conference and it's like, I'm so sorry, this is, it doesn't reflect who I am and you know, this isn't who I really am. And I'm like, well, actually it does because you did it. So it does reflect who you really are. Uh, and that's actually the point. What you do actually tells you what you really think or what you really believe. So I say, pay attention to your choices, not to your justification of those choices. Pay attention to your decisions, your choices, not your justification of those choices. You also study 1 John, and you find that you cannot separate what you do from what you really believe. For instance, chapter 4, you can't say that you love God, but also be holding on to bitterness against a fellow believer. You say one thing, but you do another, and it tells you the reality. Now, I also say this, because how does that principle connect into our personal pursuit of God's heart? And I understand maybe... Generally, we all go through slumps in our Christian life. And I I say I understand that. We also have to be careful about being lethargic and lukewarm in our prayers and seeking God and saying, well, it's just a slump, I'll get over it. We do need to take those seriously, but I, I, I put it this way because we will go to the nth degree to justify a lukewarmness or or even just a, a lethargic prayer life or a pursuit of God. But in the same 24-hour period, we will put so much energy and so much time and so much passion into our social media accounts having the most obscure details about our lives. And we put all this energy into that, but then we'll excuse over here what's actually important. I don't like social media can be a a helpful tool, understand, but we, we, we we put time into what we prioritize. We'll make time for these things and then excuse the things over here that actually matter. And this is the point because 
we don't want to call it what it is. And when I say we, just understand I mean I don't want to call it what it is. <laughs> because when I make excuses for these things but make time for the things that don't actually matter, what am I telling myself? My priority is not making God known and knowing God. My priority is this, that, or the other. We'll put time into what we value and we'll excuse the things that we maybe know we should do but don't want to feel bad about, even though we should feel guilty in the sense of you know, being positively motivated to do what's right. So we get back into this idea, right, that we say one thing but we do another. We say that worshiping God is an absolute priority when it functions in our life like a possibility. Somehow, worship seems to consistently be on the chopping block when Sunday rolls around. We say it's a priority, but it's always chopped off. We always make excuses. We say one thing, we do another. And I want you to recognize that that is the same heart of this foolish lawyer, that I can live the Christian life without God. I can redefine righteousness. I can redefine my standards and still be okay. And I want you to understand that in that process, we too are despising the one we need. So that being said, let's look at the parable. <laughs> the, the lawyer is arrogantly assuming that he's fine on his own. And what's God's answer to this reality? It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's just read, we'll just read it, okay? Verse 30 to 35. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. So uh, this parable uh, basically in many different facets has been dissected and expounded on, but it's actually very, very simple and very straightforward. You have four main characters in this parable. You have the dying man, the priest, the Levite, and then of course the hero, the good Samaritan. Now the dying man, we find uh, he's on a journey and he's robbed and left for dead. The road he actually references is a specific road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And it actually, by the Romans and by the Jews, was called the bloody road because it was just known for like, this is a part of town you don't go to, daylight, dark, never. This is not a road that you want to be on. So it is referencing a specific road, but there's a guy on a journey on this road, he's robbed and he's left for dead. Now, it says that he's left half dead. And it is, again, just significant to note that this is the only time that that sort of compound Greek word appears in the entire New Testament. Now, we understand half dead. It's like, oh, yeah, he's in bad shape. <laughs> this word is like, he's basically dead. Like, he is condemned to death. Death isn't like, eh, he, he might be okay. I mean, you know, he might, you know, if in the next couple hours somebody, I mean, this is, 
he's going to die. He is absolutely condemned to death. The death is wrapping around this guy like a python, and his doom is crashing in and crushing on in him slowly and slowly and slowly. So this dying man is completely condemned to death. It is a very uh, serious situation. Now, we also point this out because I think it just gets in our mind. Um, This guy is always painted one way, and it's always like he's a Jew because it contrasts the Samaritan. But if you look at verse 33, it says, or I'm sorry, verse 30, it's a certain man went down from Jerusalem. It doesn't actually say that he was a Jew. Uh, Again, technically, and actually if you study the original language, uh, it really could be anyone. It could be a Jew, but it could also be a Samaritan or a Gentile or even a Roman. Now, it doesn't specify, so I'm not, like, not going to start like throwing darts and hoping I hit something. I just want you to understand the language that's used is this is actually pretty general. This is, uh, it could be anyone. And I want you to recognize who this dying man represents. He actually represents us. Now, we like to be the good Samaritan, which we'll get to. But the reality of the story is we're not. We're the dying man. You know, like uh, you have tryouts and like the one kid that does bad for a play, they're just like, oh, we'll just make him a tree in the background. Yeah, don't move. Okay. That's like who we are in this story, <laughs> except we're a dead tree. I don't know. It doesn't. But you know, like this is not the part of the, like if you're in a play, this is not the role you want. But the reality is this is a general, we talk about this general term for the dying man. In the story, it's the lawyer, but in application, this actually could be anyone. For some reason, we do typically assume that it's a Jew because we're trying to contrast a Samaritan helping a Jew and Jews not helping their own brothers. But in actuality, Jesus just says, this is a person traveling who is robbed, beaten to the edge of death, and he's just left there. There's nothing in the original language that indicates any specificity of who he is or what he is. He's just a person. This is the state that we're all in without Christ. Yes, the lawyer specifically. Remember, he is trying to drive that home to the lawyer. But again, recognizing that in principle, this is every man and every woman. This is the state that we're in without God. So the wounded man is condemned, he's helpless and hopeless, and the reality is that he actually represents all of us, myself included. And then you have, you know, the second guy in the story show up, the priest. This is a man who lives and serves in the temple and synagogues, and it's, that's his life. He is serving in the temple, serving in synagogues, and culturally, this is God's man. But what does he do? Well, he sees the dying man and he does nothing. He just walks right by him. Now, the priest, the priest actually represents the law. And not just the law, but a complete religious, wholehearted devotion to the law. So what can the law do for this wounded, condemned man? Nothing. He's not helping because he doesn't want to. He's not helping because he's incapable of helping. That's the point. This man who represents the law walks up, sees this man condemned to death, and what, is it, what has happened? Well, he moves on. Why? Because he's not capable of helping this guy in the state, the condemned state that he's actually in. 
Then you have three. So the priest moves on. He represents the law, which in, the, in our condemned state, the law can do nothing for us in the sense of saving us from that condemnation. Then you have the Levite. Now, the Levite, these are individuals uh, that were part of the priestly tribe, and often they did have jobs or roles connected to the temples and synagogues. But this wasn't, to a certain extent, they're not necessarily as dedicated in their service because they often did have other jobs or careers as well. So what does this guy do? He does the same thing. He sees the man in his state, and he moves on. Now, this third man, the Levite, represents a casual or cultural dedication to the law or just to religion or whatever we believe. This is a person who is comfortable with what they believe, whether it's religion or not. And generally speaking, they have good connections or they have good intentions. But what can this person do? This, remember, go back to context. What can this man do for the condemned person? Nothing. Yeah, you guys got it. Okay, we're on the same page. <laughs> Nothing. What does he do? Oh, man, that looks bad. See ya. <laughs> he can't do anything for the condemned man and his condemned state. So we go back to this, and you recognize all hope is lost for this guy at this point. Nothing can save him. But then who steps in? The Good Samaritan, right? The hero. This man sees him, and understands the wounds that he has. He understands the seriousness of the situation. And what does he do? He does something about it. He first cleanses the wounds. And he doesn't just clean them. Notice he cleans them deeply. It says that he pours oil and wine on the man's wounds. What does that do? Well, wine, the alcohol in the wine is going to be an antiseptic. And, it's, and then the oil is actually a pain soother. So it kind of takes the edge off of pain. So what you have, and again, it's not just the surface level. He's pouring it into this open wound. And what is it doing? It is seeping down into the deepest part of this guy's wounds to heal it, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And then what does he do? So he pours on the oil and wine, cleans it, soothes it, and then he bandages it up to kind of help with the healing process. After that, uh, of course, he throws him on the, on the, well, it just says animal, so a horse, donkey, whatever it is. He th- binds up the, the wounds to help the healing, and then he transports him to an inn. And at the end, what does he do, right? He takes care of him, and then he gives the guy money and says, this will cover him, but anything else that comes up, I'll come back and take care of it. Now, uh, this is fascinating. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, heard of this excavation, this archaeological excavation. Uh, I mentioned this is a specific road. There was an excavation that was actually being done along this road. And there, kind of within it, there was like this little pocket town, whatever. And they found a sign that was actually from an inn, like at least the context of like where somebody could stay or whatever. Uh, and actually on that sign, though, for an inn, there was a price for one night stay. And so if you kind of take that, and you look at what this guy given, it says two, uh, two pence or two denarii. Uh, it, it's, he, by paying just these two denarii, whatever, he covers this guy's issues for two to three months. So this isn't just like, I'll be back in a few days, just take care of him. This is, I mean, this is a big window of time. It's like a quarter of a year where he's looking at it and saying, whatever comes up in the next three months, I'll, I'll make sure this guy is taken care of. So this Samaritan man comes upon this stranger who is more or less condemned to death. He is going to die, no question. He sees the wounds. He sees the state of this man. He recognizes what he needs uh, to even have a chance of living, and he acts. He does something. So he 
Immediately, we said, right, he takes care of the immediate needs. He cleanses the immediate wound deeply, thoroughly, cleanly. And then he takes him to this inn, and he does what is necessary to take care of this man's, all of his future needs. So immediately in this moment, he takes care of him perfectly. And then he does what is necessary to take care of everything that comes up in the future. Now, some of you might be picking up on where this is going, (laughs) because this is a very specific point to a very specific man that Jesus is making, because this Samaritan is Jesus. The good Samaritan in the story is God, because only God in our condemned state can do anything at all to give us hope in the situation. Again, we typically hear this applied as what? Be a good Samaritan. Problem is, we already have a role in the story. (laughs) It's it's not really the fun one, you know? And again, I do say this, like, we should emulate the characteristics of the Good Samaritan. However, that's not the point. The point is, without Jesus showing up, we have no hope. We are helpless without him. Remember that what Jesus is trying to expose, the helplessness and hopelessness of life without God And this principle does apply to Christians. You are, I am helpless and hopeless in living a fulfilled life and experiencing God's peace that passes all understanding if I remove remove humility before Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can heal our wounds to the deepest possible level. Only Jesus can take care of our condemnation, not just now, but for eternity in the future. For the Christian, it is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It is God who supplies our every need according to his riches and his grace and mercy. We cannot afford to live without him. We cannot afford to live without worshiping him faithfully. We cannot live uh, without seeking him humbly, without crying out to him daily, moment by moment. That is the point that Jesus is making in this parable. It is not about serving and helping, even though, again, those are good principles, but it's actually much more relevant, much more powerful, and I want you to recognize much more eternal than that. We hold such a shallow view of Scripture sometimes that our methodology, even of Bible study, can be so self-focused sometimes. And you recognize that with just a little bit of digging and humility and going to God's Word, we find the gold mine of God's truth, which cuts deeper than just the surface level. And it cuts not just into our actions, but into our hearts and our motives behind them. There is one more important question, though, because remember, we talked about the idea of despising the one that we need, because technically the good Samaritan could have been anybody. He could have just been, and this good man shows up, but why a Samaritan? And recognize he's trying to communicate, remember, something very specific to this Jewish man. The Jews despise Samaritans, and to be fair, the Samaritans also despise the Jews, so it's, you know, sort of mutual, (laughs) But what, is, what do you see instantly in his response, though? So look at verses 36 and 37. Uh, oops, other page, sorry. 36, so Jesus finishes the peril. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And what does the lawyer say? Um, he says, he that showed mercy on him. So he's not even willing to say, oh, the Samaritan. He despises Samaritans. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is getting across to this guy. Because what does he say? He quotes, again, exactly what he did, Leviticus 18, that principle. And Jesus says to him again, go and do thou likewise. He communicates immediately to this man, the one you need is the one you are despising. Remember why he came to Jesus in the first place, to trip him up, 
to try to nuance the law and, and get him. And Jesus is saying, you are despising the one that you need. The truth exposed here that this first call, again, it is uh, this forever, always, perfectly love and serve everyone. That was sort of the call to expose this man's arrogance. The question that the lawyer asked in attaining eternal life now and forever is answered by Jesus by clarifying to him that you, this lawyer, you're seeking to do what only God can do. Jesus requotes Leviticus 18 and brings that, that powerful truth back up. But again, why did Jesus make the Savior in the story a Samaritan? Because again, he could have been anybody, but it communicates immediately to this guy, the person that you're despising, the one that you hate, is the one that you need. This man hates and despises Samaritans, which is exactly why Jesus did that, to expose the need that he had for the one that he actually despised. You say you love God, but your actions betray you. Your choices betray you. Like Isaiah says to his people in Isaiah 5, and now Jesus says to this man, you are despising the one you truly need. The one that you say you love is the one that you lack true loyalty, true faithfulness, and true humility to. As we kind of conclude this message, you can study other passages like Matthew 15, and actually Isaiah 29 is another good one. It challenges us with a very similar principle as this. You say you love God, but your heart and your life tell a very different story. To the lost individual, or I would actually even say to someone who's resting in tradition and behavior or thinking that salvation has just always been a part of your life, you have to recognize that without humility before God, without the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and humility and calling out on him for salvation, there is no hope outside of God. Don't carry the same arrogance and self-righteousness and thinking that you can earn God's favor or that you are fine on your own without the blood of Christ covering your sins and the condemnation that your sin lays on you. As Isaiah said, and Christ actually says here, stop despising the one that you need. Repent, follow, and trust God for the salvation that only he provides. Now, to those of us who would say that we've done that, right? Maybe we've repented, uh, we've gone to God seeking him humbly for his gift of salvation, and we're seeking to live a life that honors God. There is a similar principle here that applies to us. Stop trying to live the Christian life on your own. What does that mean? Stop making the Christian life about you. Stop explaining away guilt by justifying certain actions or inactions. Stop pretending that worshiping God and getting to know God is a priority when your weekly routine says something very different. Stop trying to live the Christian life without humility before your Savior. Stop despising the one that you need. Living a life that honors God is not about self-empowerment or proclamations of sufficiency by misunderstanding and misapplying scripture. It is a similar principle to what Jesus confronts this legalistic lawyer with. Without Christ, even as a believer, without Christ, without the gospel, we are helpless and hopeless. The Christian life is about knowing God and making him known. It's, the, it's about the humbling honor, the blessing and the privilege to just be a part of what God is doing in this world and in the lives of others. It isn't about us. It's about the sacrifice of Christ being humbled by his love for you and then humbly seeking to show his love to others so that people are directed to him, not to us. 
Your life should proclaim with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, that I must decrease, I have to decrease, so that God can increase. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is actually an evangelistic call by Jesus Christ to remind all of us that eternal life, that the fulfilled, the fulfilled joyful life is impossible without Christ. Uh, Proverbs 17.10 says this, One rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Now I bring that up because I look at my own life and I find a, a humbling reality that God often has to convict me about the same thing over and over and over and over before I finally do something about it. And I have to look at my life and recognize how how foolish that really is. And unfortunately, Proverbs 26, 12 becomes a reality to me. You see the, the man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope of a fool than of him. And I recognize that I, I, I almost want to be the fool. <laughs> There's hope. You know? And there is hope because of Christ, of course. And again, I get into this because I look at that and I look at my own life. And when I begin to see my own struggle the most with my attitude, with my anxiety, with my selfishness and attitude in serving, even with my own kids, it's because that I've, I've arrogantly begun carrying the load of the Christian life that I should be resting in God for. And I may not say it with my lips, but in my heart and in my actions, the reality is that I am despising the one that I need. I'm despising the one that gives me the, the, really just the, even the possibility of being able to live a life that honors God. Because it's not about what I think, it's about what God says, period. In Luke 10, Jesus lovingly but clearly calls out the foolishness and the hopelessness of a person uh, who is seeking to earn or carry their own righteousness. To the lost, there is no salvation but in Christ alone. To the believer, stop trying to do the Christian life without Christ. The parable of the Good Samaritan is simply a call to stop arrogantly assuming that we can do it all. Instead, Jesus calls us to humbly put ourselves at the feet of Christ, acknowledging that without him, we really are hopeless. I close with this. Uh, there is, I think, I know we hear that, and it is kind of bittersweet, isn't it? Because there is a bitterness to having to humbly taste our own sin, our own selfishness, and our own arrogance. And, and feeling the conviction from the Holy Spirit. But recognize that responding humbly to those things is that much sweeter because knowing and being right and close with God, being faithful to God is truly the greatest and most complete joy that you could ever have. I just want to remind you with the psalmist of Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Stop despising the one you need and instead surrender all to him, not just today, but every day. Let his heart consume yours and let the gospel of Jesus Christ energize you towards faithfulness, love, service, and humility. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, this morning recognizing how much we, how much I desperately need you in my life, that a new year is always a time where we feel an extra push to change, to grow, to form a new habit, which can be good things. But I, I just ask for myself and for everyone, for our church family, 
that we would start this new year with a desire to be humbled, not just to be humble people, God, but to be humbled people before your throne every single day. Remind us of how much we need you. Um, Burden us when we start to walk in life in our own strength. Give us clarity uh, and guidance uh, each day as we seek to live for you. And just help us not to do it on our own. I do want to pray for anybody in here and even those in our lives that are lost, that think they're okay without you. And I pray that you'd work in their life. Um, And I know that we pray for them, but also God motivate us to reach them ourselves, uh, to take some uh, passion and desire in reaching people and not just passing it off to others. Uh, Help us to love you, to serve you. Help us to be humble before you and just to remember how much we really need you each day. We love you so much, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.